Welcome to the first podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's Opioid Analgesic REMS Education Blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, Professor and Chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, discuss the basics of pain management. Our focus today is on the older adult population, and we've prepared this series with an understanding of how critical a comprehensive pain management program is for many older adults. Let's be honest, we are facing an opioid crisis in this country, and some of the unwanted fallout from that is that patients who legitimately need pain management with opioids are not able to get it. So we are seeing, on occasion, senior citizens who are either being undertreated for pain or not treated at all. So today we want to think about some special considerations specifically for older adults when pain management involves opioid use. So Keila, it's so nice to talk with you again. Thanks, Kate. Well, how about if we start by considering why healthcare professionals who care for older adults need a comprehensive education in pain management. Can you share some of your insights? Sure, I'm happy to. It's really important to understand that pain is a significant prevalent problem in older adults with anywhere from 25 to 85% experiencing chronic pain, depending on the setting in which they're receiving care. So pain is a big problem. Managing pain is challenging enough with this population. But when working with opioids, there are additional challenges and concerns that we need to be aware of. Given the current opioid crisis, concerns have been raised regarding appropriate use, particularly for chronic pain. And it's a topic that definitely needs discussion so clinicians are better prepared to provide safe, effective care. There are also unique risks and vulnerabilities of older adults related to opioids because of the physical and cognitive changes that occur with aging and the multiple chronic conditions that occur requiring polypharmacy, making older adults more vulnerable to adverse effects for any medication, let alone opioids. We also know that opioids have less systemic risk, so it makes them an important option for some older adults given that NSAIDs and other pain medications can also be risky in that population. We also know that the incidence of misuse and opioid overdose deaths in older adults is not that high, but numbers suggest that that might be increasing. So it's important for providers to pay attention and put in place practices that are going to keep patients safe. Although pain is not expected with aging, conditions that are known to be painful are more common, such as musculoskeletal problems like arthritis, low back pain, and neurological conditions such as diabetic neuropathy, shingles, post-stroke syndrome. Pain is very likely to occur um, and needs to be carefully addressed because it impacts quality of life. Older adults do have unique vulnerabilities that need to be taken into consideration and education of providers related to these changes and risks is an important part of uh, being prepared to take care of this vulnerable population. Akila, I think that's a great summary. And, you know, we talk about the silver tsunami of seniors, people over age 65, but 
even more importantly, the population over age 85 is the fastest growing cohort throughout the industrialized world. These are the individuals who are going to be experiencing development accumulation of painful conditions and comorbidities that are going to make use of medications somewhat problematic. So I'm very glad that we have this opportunity to talk about this important problem. I think we would like to share with our listeners some vignettes of individuals we've known, older individuals who have had chronic pain. Someone who comes to mind is a 68-year-old male with chronic back pain. Hank is a 68-year-old retired machinist who lives at home with his wife and enjoys golfing and road trips to visit his grandchildren in a neighboring state. I've had back pain off and on for a long time, probably since my early 40s. I don't really know if I injured my back like at work or if it just happened because of just wear and tear over time. I had a pretty physical job. Anyway, I would throw my back out sometimes. Lots of times I didn't even know why. So my back pain's been flaring up more and more often to the point now where it hurts pretty much all the time. I've tried stretching, I've tried exercises, I've tried taking aspirin and acetaminophen and naproxen. I've tried pain patches and ice and heat. None of it seems to even make a dent in the pain. I'm struggling to keep up with household chores, and I've canceled my last three golf games. We were supposed to drive out to see my grandkids last week, but I'm just too uncomfortable to sit all that time in the car. So... Now, it's, it's not just the pain anymore. It's, it's about the frustration of not being able to do what I want to do most. Now, let's return to the discussion. At the point at which he sought pain management, he was really unable to maintain function without some form of intervention and analgesia. Keela, I, I think I shared with you, I have in my practice a, a lady in her 80s who I met in the intensive care unit almost 30 years ago because she was so anemic that she needed to be hospitalized. Rosemary is an 80-year-old patient with a 25-year history of fibromyalgia who was first diagnosed after being hospitalized with a GI bleed and a hemoglobin of 6 grams per deciliter. The bleed was apparently caused by use of over-the-counter ibuprofen to manage her chronic pain. I remember I was washing dishes at the sink. I was feeling lightheaded and weak. Then I guess I fainted. My husband told me that later. I woke up in the ICU. I guess it was kind of a blessing in disguise because finally I was able to talk to someone about the constant pain I was having. I'd never heard of fibromyalgia before then. I still have a lot of aches and pains, but I'm much better now. Back then, there were days I could barely get out of bed. Here I am, 25 years later. I just keep on going. I try to stay busy and active. I walk the dog every morning, and I do my household chores. My doctors have me on two different medicines. One is an anticonvulsant, and the other is an antidepressant. You see ads for it on TV. I'm not depressed, though. I use it for the pain, and it does seem to help. Let's see what else our experts may want to add. And not a surprise that she ended up in the ICU. 
And you know, what may be surprising is that she's done so well. Currently, you know, her pain is very well managed without opioids, um, but it does take the commitment of a team of providers to seek what exactly is going to work best for her. Well, and another example is Jane, who had breast cancer that had metastasized to her bone. Jane, an 88-year-old resident in assisted living, has breast cancer that has metastasized to her bones. Cognitively, she is sharp, but physically she's quite frail. Until recently, she had been able to ambulate with the front-wheeled walker, but over the past few weeks, she has been spending more time in her room because of the constant pain. My son got all worried about me. He bought me a wheelchair, which I really don't want to use. He insisted on taking me to the doctor. So we're at the appointment, and I asked the doctor, is there something you can do to help with this terrible pain? The doctor says, yes, of course, we have some options. She started to explain, but as soon as she said the word opioid, my son got very upset. He says, you're not going to do that to my mom. I listened to the news. There's no way that's going to happen. Let's hear what our experts have to say about this. It's always struck me as odd that even at the end of life, people are afraid of taking opioid medications when the ultimate goal is to just assure comfort. The risks in that population in particular are so low, it shouldn't be the priority. We should be focused on pain relief and quality of life. Part of what families may be feeling is in addition to their concerns about addiction, they also may have seen someone who died while taking opioids. And as you and I know, if somebody in palliative care or receiving hospice for a terminal illness, we will be using opioids to mitigate their pain and maybe even to manage their dyspnea. We use morphine quite effectively to help with respiratory symptomatology. So if they know a family member who was taking an opioid and they died, they may be attributing that death to the opioid, when in fact, the opioid did not cause the death. It's unlikely that it even hastened the death. It may have just eased the transition to dying. So I think these are very difficult areas to convey to families, and but it is really important that we recognize that stigma that does still attach to use of opioids. Now, Kate, I think it's also important to raise the point about untreated pain and how devastating that can be on function and quality of life. You know, there's plenty of studies that have documented that ineffectively managed pain in older adults can lead to impaired function, contribute to mood issues such as depression and anxiety, interfere with sleep and nutrition, and ability to engage in meaningful social recreational activities such as spending time with their grandchildren. It can cause cognitive impairment or worse cognitive impairment. These are really important elements of quality of life in older adult years. And so it's a careful balance of the risks and benefits of our treatment approaches. But the ultimate goal has to be management of pain to a level where older adults can achieve the goals that are important to them and have the best quality of life possible. Thank you for sharing that. Well, 
Another point is the old saw of the patient who comes in and says, you know, my right knee is killing me. It's, I, I can't bend it. I'm unable to go up and down stairs. And the clinician says, well, what do you expect at your age? Of course, your knee is bothering you. And the patient looks at the clinician and says, but my left knee feels fine. So it's important to turn the spotlight on some of our own biases about pain uh, and that pain is not to be expected as a natural part of aging. It's something that we as clinicians really do need to be able to address. Talking about expectations, an important point is that in our history recently, we clinicians have tried to convey that the goal is no pain. And now in this era of opioid misuse and abuse, we're reining back into what is realistic, and that is to lower pain to a level that allows the older person to do the things that are important to them in their life. That may not be a zero. That may be mild pain. I mean, that may be the best that we're able to accomplish, but we're not going to accept moderate to severe pain without continuing to tailor our treatment plan. And you know, one of the things I like to tell patients, and I feel strongly about this, having zero pain is not safe. We're going to talk about what is the biological significance of pain? Why do we have pain? Why is pain important? It's our early warning system. Do you agree? Absolutely. Um, And I was going to share as far as trying to differentiate acute pain from chronic pain. There are two different types of pain that warrant different treatment approaches. And so definitely acute pain is that warning sign. It usually starts suddenly, occurs from trauma or injury, bone, muscle, or organs, and typically resolves when the injury is healed. And that's very different from chronic pain, which serves no useful purpose and can actually be harmful because of the negative consequences mentioned earlier. Chronic pain is typically defined as pain that lasts for three to six months and is often linked to some long-term illness and often related to nerve damage. But Mm -hmm. also often chronic pain does not have an identifiable etiology. I think about 30% of chronic pain, you can't put your finger on exactly what the cause is, which makes treatment very difficult because you can't sort out a specific target that can be addressed. Understanding the timing and duration of pain is really important to help determine what treatment options are going to be appropriate and to monitor changes and improvements in pain with acute pain when healing occurs and chronic pain over a longer period when the cause may not go away. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, chronic pain as a feedback loop that just is not able to be broken. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, the classic idea of slamming your fingers in the car door. What do people do? Well, they grab their hand, they grab their fingers, and they're doing that because they're sending their brain a counter stimulus to say, look, yes, this was an acute pain event, but we are able to mitigate it. And oh, my hand is still here. You know, I think about that feedback loop with respect to how acute pain over time can become chronic pain through, you know, changes in the pain signaling in the brain and neuroplasticity. 
So I'm wondering whether you feel that chronic pain that has developed from abnormal central processing over time or neuroplasticity of the pain pathways is itself a diagnosis? Yes, and I'm not the only one that believes that. Um, and chronic pain is now um, within the ICD-9 codes. Mm -hmm. And I think, but that's a big mind shift for clinicians and for patients to understand that chronic pain is in itself a disease state that needs management, not just as a symptom. That's a really important point. Well, how do you explain neuropathic pain? How is neuropathic pain different? And is it different from nociceptive pain? Yeah, they are two different types of pain that need to be differentiated because the treatments for each are different. So nociceptive pain originates from injury or impairment to muscles, joints, bones, or supportive tissues, um, including organ muscles like the heart, and develops when the nerve fibers are inflamed from chemicals or other physical events. Um, compare that to neuropathic pain, which is damage to the somatosensory nervous system. So the central or peripheral nervous system is somehow damaged and results in um, abnormal sensations. Descriptions of qualities of pain helps clinicians to differentiate if there might be nerve-related pain. So you can have hyperalgesia, allodynia, where um, non-painful stimuli are painful and different descriptions of pain, like um, numbness, tingling, burning, crawling on the skin. Those are all descriptors of neuropathic pain that helps to differentiate it from nociceptive pain. Um, you know, when I think about paresthesias, which are characteristic of neuropathic pain, when you try to explain that to someone, they're like, well, what, what do you mean? A feeling of something that isn't there, you know, ants crawling on my legs or fire burning my foot you know people have a hard time conceptualizing it the example that I like to use is have you ever sat on your foot or woken up with your foot asleep and that sensation is a paresthesia and I think that helps people to understand because neuropathic pain can be devastating you know it can it can affect every level of your life sleep and ability to remain physically fit. It can even affect nutritional status and can cause depression, anxiety, and certainly neuropathic and chronic pain have impacts on uh, social status, work status, intimacy, relationships, and so forth. So do you want to turn to pain assessment? We've talked about how patients may present with pain, but how do we assess pain in older individuals? What are some of the key steps? So to me, the pain assessment is probably the most important part of understanding what's going on with the older adult and their pain problem. A comprehensive assessment is required, and that involves a, a number of different aspects of information that needs to be collected. But one, the first thing is to understand the pain problem and how it is being experienced. You know, how severe is the pain? What is the quality of the pain? What is the duration, location? And pulling that information out through conversation and interview is one approach. And then there are tools that help to quantify some of these elements. 
It is also important to look at the type of pain as we just talked about and its pattern. So trying to figure out if it's nociceptive, neuropathic, or a mixed pain, which is also very common in the older adult. It's also important to understand related issues. That is, how does pain impact the person's ability to engage in activities that are important and meaningful to them? Understanding if pain is interfering with physical function, with psychological, emotional function, with relationships. Mm -hmm. Understanding this is really key because it's going to inform the goals that we're going to set um, and monitor over time. I think it's really also important in the comprehensive assessment to look at pharmacologic and other treatment history. You know, when you are taking care of an older person with a pain problem, this is not the first time they've had pain in their life. Right. So what has worked for them before? You know, have they used heat, cold? What medications have they used? You know, often you'll uncover that older adults have tried opioids, for example, but had horrible side effects and they were not adherent. So then we're often told, well, that wasn't effective. It probably wasn't effective because they actually didn't complete the treatment in the way that it was prescribed. So getting a good sense of what has and hasn't worked can also be a clue to some of the triggers related to the pain process. So the assessment is complex. A lot of different elements need to be investigated to really have a good understanding of the pain problem that then guides the treatment plan. That's right. What tools do you think work best for assessing pain in older individuals? You know, and I'm thinking in particular about individuals who may be reluctant to report because they fear another test or, like you said, a treatment that may be unpleasant. And maybe what about special tools for individuals who have dementia and are not able to articulate what is happening to them. Do we have any scales or tools that work well here? We do. Although I don't know that any particular tool or scale is going to get at the reluctance to report or acknowledge pain, which is a big problem with a lot of older adults. You know, they believe that they should be stoic, that they should just live with pain. They don't want to bother, you know, the provider. They want them to focus on their other medical conditions. And so not reporting pain accurately is an issue, but I think that has to be addressed by education and Mm -hmm. making sure that they understand the importance of acknowledging pain because of all of the negative things that can happen if it's not addressed. But back to scales and tools. So there are a number of valid and reliable scales that have been developed for use in older adults to assess and monitor pain. And I know you can ask questions about pain severity and about function and get some information that way, but without a standard consistent way of measuring that's used over time and by different providers, it's very difficult to judge improvements in function, in pain severity, and achievement of goals of care. So I feel strongly that each organization or practice needs to have a set of scales that they integrate into the assessment and reassessments that occur 
on every visit with the patient. In the studies that we've done, looking at comparisons across different types of scales, most older adults prefer a word scale mm-hmm. or a verbal descriptor scale, which just categorizes the pain as to none, mild, moderate, severe. That's one simple example of a descriptor scale. There are also faces pain scales that have been validated in older adults. The older person looks at the faces and picks the one that represents how bad their pain is. We've also added a thermometer to a verbal descriptor pain scale as a way to conceptualize worsening pain and improving pain the way temperature increases or decreases. You mentioned cognitive impairment. Even older individuals with mild to moderate cognitive impairment are able to self-report their pain and its impact with simple tools and ways to communicate. So it is important to try to get self-report in all patients who have the ability to communicate. But more important than pain severity to me is gathering that information on the impact of pain. So if pain is, say, moderate, how is that affecting ability to engage in activities that are important for quality of life. Using a functional scale or an impact interference scale is one way to do that. You know, probably the most common scale that brings all this together is the brief pain inventory short Mm -hmm. form, which has simple questions about interference of pain with work, physical activity, mood, enjoyment of life. If that is integrated into a practice as a baseline measure and then used repeatedly over time, you'll have a map of what's happening with this person and how their pain is affecting their life. There are also some shorter scales, like the functional pain scale that looks at pain tolerability. The VA has developed the PEG scale, which correlates very highly with the brief pain inventory. So there are a variety of tools that are available and recommended in clinical guidelines to evaluate pain and function over time. You know, Kayla, I'm really glad that you brought out the idea of using functional assessment tools. Um, And I like to think about family members or caregivers and how they can play a role in assessing pain. Probably the best way that a caregiver can determine whether the individual's pain is is better or worse is by looking at their behavior, their demeanor, and their overall physical function. Would you agree with that? Yep, those are really good points, and that relates to how do we assess pain in people who are unable to communicate. Right. There are several strategies, and one is to be proactive, to identify conditions that we know are painful and be proactive in treating as if they're experiencing pain. Then a part of that whole process is to get information on behaviors and behavior change, and that's where the family caregiver or paid caregiver plays a really important role because they know the person best, and they're able to detect changes that a clinician may not be aware of um, when interactions are spread out over time. So engaging and empowering the caregiver to participate in recognizing pain and monitoring for changes is really critical. Absolutely. And I just have to share my anecdote. I do a lot of nursing home work. One of the classic things I'll see is they'll be discussing how the patients are doing and I'll say, how's her pain? And they'll say, oh, she's not in any pain. She's lying in bed and she seems really comfortable. And when we go and assess the patient, she's lying in bed in a fetal position not able to move because of the pain she is experiencing. So we, 
I, I agree with you that empowering caregivers to give us information is good, but we also have to educate them and keep that idea that the patient may be not moving, not talking, and not functioning because of pain. You know, related to that, Kate, we have behavioral pain scales for this population, and almost all of them require movement of the Mm -hmm. person, you know, putting them through daily activities or range of motion or turning, because since musculoskeletal pain is one of the most common causes of pain in this population, they need to be moved to actually stimulate the pain. So you are absolutely right. Observing someone who is lying in bed, um, not moving, is not a good reflection of underlying pain behaviors. Right. And when you move the patient, please observe their face and see whether or not they're grimacing. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. On the topic of assessment, when should the risk of opioid addiction or abuse be part of our pain assessment? And here we're talking again about older individuals. Yep. So assessing for risk of opioid addiction or abuse has not typically been part of the pain assessment for older adults. Given the goal of reducing risk overall, I think it may be appropriate to have a simple screen to establish potential risk for abuse or to document that there isn't risk. So in future podcasts, we're going to be talking about some simple tools that can help guide older adults and families to use opioids safely when that's an option in the treatment plan. Agree. And really, that's why we're here, isn't it? It is. So we'll talk more in detail about opioid use disorder later in our series, but let's close this podcast with some key takeaways. Do you have one or two things that you think we should summarize with, Keela? I do. So pain, particularly chronic pain, is common in older adults, and thus we need to be proactive in assessing it and developing an effective treatment plan. Older adults need a comprehensive assessment to gather the relevant information on which to base a treatment plan. And there are reliable and valid tools that help the older adult's voice be heard and so that we have a common metric for evaluating and communicating changes and improvements with treatment over time. Those are my key takeaways. And those are very good ones, Kayla. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I also want to thank the audience for being with us for this podcast, and I want to encourage everyone to tune into our next podcast in the Pain Coach series, which will be Creating the Pain Treatment Plan. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Creating the Pain Treatment Plan. Welcome to the second podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's opioid analgesic REMS education blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keela Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, consider steps in establishing pain treatment plans for our older adult patients. So, Keila, what are the key components of an effective pain treatment plan? So, let me just highlight the elements, and then I want to identify a few topics within that that are particularly relevant to older adults. 
So first component is to establish the treatment goals. Second, to understand who the treatment team is and their roles and responsibilities, and that includes the patient and the caregiver. Third, consider both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic interventions. Consider when opioids might be part of the pharmacologic intervention approach. Implementing the plan and then monitoring and evaluating the treatment outcomes and goals. When we're thinking about older adults, the focus needs to be on getting information from them directly and using that to establish unique goals for the patient. Now, for some older adults, it's not going to be possible to get that information directly, and it's going to be the family caregiver who has insights that can contribute, and they need to be part of that treatment planning team. It's also important in developing the treatment plan that we understand any misbeliefs about pain and its treatment that might interfere with our ability to have a successful treatment approach. Older adults have a lot of misconceptions about pain, as do their family members. It's also important to communicate that pain doesn't have to be endured. Although we may not be able to eliminate it, it should be possible to manage it to a level that allows them to do what is important to them. So establishing their goals for treatment, what is it that they are not able to do because of pain that is interfering with their quality of life? Use that as a target for goal setting. So for example, if spending time with their grandchildren and have them sitting on their lap is important, but they are just not able to because of the pain, then let's make that a goal you know, once or twice a week to be able to have grandchildren visit and interact with them. As I mentioned, it might be necessary to involve the caregiver, particularly if they're going to be overseeing the treatment plan, which is often the case, and monitoring for outcomes. Also, in considering the treatment plan and what approaches we're going to be using, it's important to determine what the patient has already tried and what has or hasn't worked. What concerns do they have about their treatment, particularly related to analgesics? Um, if opioids are going to be part of the treatment plan, it's important to explore any concerns about risks and to educate. Obviously, that's a very multidisciplinary approach, or we might call it a multimodal approach. Um, and while we're on the topic of modalities, what are some of the non-pharmacologic strategies that we can use for helping to manage pain? So there's a variety of non-drug interventions that are appropriate for use with older adults. I do have to mention that the evidence related to non-pharmacologic intervention is limited in older adults, particularly those with cognitive impairment. And we don't know which intervention will work for which patient. Thus, presenting the options positively and with hope that they will provide benefit is a key communication strategy, and then determining what the older adult is willing to try. And do they believe it has the potential to help? Another consideration is access. You know, is there insurance or funding for the type of activity that might be recommended? But back to what are the different approaches that can be used, probably the best studied especially if with chronic pain is exercise. Even simple walking can help to address chronic pain problems. Maintaining strength and flexibility is important for overall functional improvement and mood, um, but it also has an analgesic effect. 
Some other physical interventions such as heat and cold, massage, physical therapy are all appropriate for use in older adults. Psychological interventions can be used as well, such as cognitive behavioral approaches and techniques that teach coping strategies, um, relaxation techniques, mindfulness meditation, use of distraction or music, all have been used in older adults effectively. Sometimes we don't think about functional approaches, but the use of assistive devices, braces, orthotics um, can be useful. Interventional techniques like joint injections, stimulators um, have a place in the comprehensive treatment plan. And then there's uh, alternative therapies such as acupuncture and acupressure, cranial stimulation, aromatherapy. Again, the level of evidence is variable. Um, in older adults, but exploring some of the more tested interventions would certainly be recommended as part of the treatment plan. I, I completely agree with you, and I just want to say that one of my mottos with respect to exercise is that, you know, motion is lotion. <laughs> if somebody is able to move, they are going to, you know, affect not just better function, but it will impact their mood and ultimately have a pain relieving effect. So we didn't mention movement modalities like Tai Chi or yoga, and I think they're really important. And I am an osteopathic physician, and we believe very strongly in being able to affect pain management through therapeutic touch. So thank you for those options. So Keila, let's think a little bit about some of the non-opioid pharmacologic modalities that we have. I'm thinking about medications like acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain? So we always do start with non-opioids because we think that they're least, less risky than opioids. However, a number of them have issues and concerns. Acetaminophen, of course, is still probably first line, except it's not going to be appropriate in older adults that have issues with liver function. Whereas NSAIDs are often offered up, has the next line of analgesics, they come with significant risks, particularly to older adults that have a history of cardiovascular disease or GI ulcers, for example. Even in older adults that don't have comorbidities, NSAIDs have been problematic for long-term use, so they're really only recommended for a very short-term course. The challenge with chronic pain management in older adults is that their pain problem isn't going away in a week. It's ongoing, and we have to find a way to manage it. And that's why opioids are part of the treatment options that need to be considered. So weighing the risks of opioids against the functional impairments and interference with quality of life that the older adult is experiencing is going to be really important. Do you think that there may be a role for acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as what we would call adjuvant with opioids? In other words, using them in lower doses, maybe only as needed. I think that some of our patients are very reluctant to take opioids around the clock. Maybe if they're able to use acetaminophen a couple of times a day, staying well below the hepatotoxic dose of, you know, three grams, 
or non-steroidals in selected patients who don't have the problem of you know renal disease or a history of cardiovascular events. Uh, how do you feel about that? You know, that's been recommended for a long time is the synergy effect of having non-opioids and opioids in, as a part of the treatment plan. I believe there have been some studies recently that are documenting that this is an appropriate choice. So I do think it's a definitely something to take into consideration. Mm -hmm. So earlier we talked about neuropathic pain and the treatments you might use, which are probably either anticonvulsant or antidepressant has primary treatments for that type of pain problem. They also have adverse effects and so have to be monitored carefully. But there are a variety of different medications that can be considered to be used separately or in combination with or without opioids um, as a part of the treatment plan. Back to the question of when might we consider opioids. To me, when other appropriate interventions have been tried and pain remains moderate to severe with significant impact on function and quality of life, that is when I would want to explore opioids as a part of the treatment plan. I totally agree. You know, the other thing that the FDA wants us to remember is if we're going to be considering opioids, they would like the pain to be rated as either moderate or severe, and that we begin it as a therapeutic trial. In other words, we're going to see if it works, monitor how the patient is doing, look at the patient's function and pain levels, and make ongoing decisions, ideally in a shared decision-making way with the patient and caregivers. So when opioids are part of the plan, what are some additional elements that we're talking about in terms of education and screening? Yep. So even though we know that older adults are at less risk for opioid misuse and abuse, there still are concerns. And so it is really important that a risk-benefit analysis is conducted and that patients and providers are aware of the risks that need to be monitored for. There are recommendations for screening for risk or opioid use disorder in all people, and it can be done with a simple screen. This is going to continue to be more important as the current cohort of people entering the 65-plus age group is aging because they were raised in an era where drug use was more prevalent um, and recreational than in our current older adults. So I think it is going to become more important that we screen and be careful in our risk assessment and set up um, procedures that keep things safe. But to me, probably one of the most important things in talking with the older adult about the risks for opioid misuse is misuse by others which is a very common issue in homes where older adults are using opioids. So educating them on the risks for potential for stealing or for use by family, neighbors, caregivers, and the cautions that need to be in place, such as locking up opioids, what to do with leftover opioids to make sure that others are not put at risk. I think I shared with you, Kayla, with my hospice team, when we have patients with opioids in the home, the nurses will sometimes use code when they're concerned. They may say something to the effect of, you know, doc, there are a lot of people in the home. 
<laughs> meaning no one was visiting grandma before, but now with opioids in the home, there are a lot of new people hanging around. And what they're telling us is it's time to intervene and get a lockbox into the home, educate the seniors, and assign one of the caregivers to control the medication so that it doesn't fall into the hands of children or teenagers uh, because we know how devastating that can be. Can you share with us how the opioids work in pain relief? So opioids bind to the opioid receptors in the brain, spinal cord, and other areas of the body. And by doing that, it reduces the ability of the brain to send messages out about the painful experience. Opioids are used to treat moderate to severe pain that may not respond well to other pain medications. And they do this by interfering with the way that the brain perceives the pain problem. Mm -hmm. I see. And when we talk a little bit later about opioid use disorder, we'll get a little bit more in depth as to the parts of the brain that are involved and why these can become problematic. So what types of opioids are available? Can you just quickly give us an idea of the types of formulations that are available, maybe including a little bit about the abuse deterrent formulations? You bet. So, you know, there are opioids that are full and partial agonists, means that they act in different ways. Full agonist opioids activate the mu, kappa, and sigma opioid receptors in the brain and result in the full effect of the opioid. And examples of that are oxycodone, methadone, hydrocodone, morphine. There are antagonists that block those opioids from attaching to the receptor, such as naltrexone and naloxone. Mm -hmm. And then partial agonists, such as buprenorphine or butorphanol or tramadol, that are mixed. And so they have varying level of activity on the opioid receptor that contributes to a ceiling effect. They often have less euphoria to them. So those factors can impact the type of drug that is most likely to be abused. When we think about different routes of administration, it's important to think about this, particularly in the cognitively impaired or those at the end of life who may not be able to take oral products. Sublingual and transdermal formulations can be really important options in those populations. We also differentiate between immediate release versus um, extended release or long-acting opioids, and they play a different role as far as dependency and when you can use them, because you certainly never want to use an extended release or long-acting product in those that don't have an established history of opioid use or tolerance to the adverse effects of, in particular, respiratory depression and sedation. Mm -hmm. So there are abuse deterrent formulations that have the antagonist agents embedded in them, such as naloxone. Those products reduce risk for misuse and abuse because if the product is altered, the antagonist is released and that counters or prevents um, the euphoria that one might get. These products, although important to combat misuse and abuse, are often not covered by third-party payers, particularly Medicare and Medicaid. So they may not be an option um, for many of our older adults. And they may still have the potential for abuse. I'm not thinking so much of the patient him or herself, but rather someone who may be getting them through diversion. 
Let's turn now toward some of the definitions about risks like abuse and that terrible word addiction. I know we're moving away from using the terminology addiction and now talking about substance use disorder, but let's talk a little bit about concepts of abuse, misuse, tolerance, and so forth. Yes. So this is an area that can be kind of complex because there is some overlap between some terms. It's often confusing, but I think it's helpful to clarify that Misuse is when someone is using their opioid in a way that is not the way it was prescribed. So maybe taking too much medication, taking someone else's medication, um, not using it for its intended purpose. And I think a classic example is that patients will take their opioid to help them sleep, which is a bad idea because Mm -hmm. we know that opioids can interfere with the sleep architecture. That's a great example, Kate. Um, Abuse is when someone is intentionally using the opioid for non-medical purpose. So using it without a prescription or using it for the experience of euphoria, not for pain relief. Right. Addiction, as you noted, we're trying to move away from the use of that term, but it does refer to this pattern of continued use despite potential for harm. There's impaired control over the use of the drug, compulsive use, and they are often showing issues within their life, harm to relationships, inability to meet commitments, et cetera, um, that are evident, but yet don't stop the use. Craving is also a part Mm -hmm. of that as well. We're going to talk more about that in our final podcast, but it's good to review some of this. What about the idea of tolerance versus dependence? Because one of the things that I see with families is when the patient says, this medicine isn't working anymore, I need a higher dose, I need to take an extra dose now, Um, many times the family will leap to the conclusion that the individual is becoming addicted to the medication when in fact what they're manifesting is tolerance. The dose of medication that they were getting relief from before is no longer giving them the same analgesia they were experiencing. Well, you've covered that pretty well, Kate. Dependence is the other one. Dependence does not equal addiction, does it? No, absolutely not. And it's really important to understand. I like to compare it to somebody who's on steroids. Um, You don't just automatically stop cold turkey because their body has become adapted to a certain level of that medication. And so they have to gradually taper off. It's the same with opioid dependence. The body becomes physiologically um, adapted to receiving that stimulation to their neurons and the exposure from the opioid. And so the body won't function normally if that drug is no longer available. So if it's withdrawn, what you then have is withdrawal syndrome. Prolonged use of opioids makes the receptors dependent upon the drug to function. And if you stop it, cold turkey, you're going to have a physical response with physical sickness, you know, diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, chills, which is why it's so important that if the plan is to try reducing the opioid dose or stopping opioids, it needs to be done very thoughtfully and cautiously over time. 
Absolutely. Do you think there are special risks that we should be considering for older patients? And are there specific opioids that we should completely avoid in the older population? So I think it's important to be aware um, of the high risk for comorbidities in older people that may make them more at risk for opioid-induced respiratory depression. You know, so if there's a history of cardiac disease, pulmonary disease, um, obstructive sleep apnea, right. those have all been associated with increased risk for respiratory depression, which is, um, you know, the major concern that leads to deaths. We also see a high risk of respiratory uh, depression in older adults that are prescribed opioids and also benzodiazepines um, because they have an additive respiratory depressant effect. And even though there are strong recommendations to not use benzos in older people, they still are prevalent, um, particularly in long-term care facilities. I'm sure you have some other examples, Kate, of concerns. Well, that's the big concern. Individuals who are being co-prescribed a benzodiazepine or any type of sedative hypnotic, or individuals who may be abusing alcohol or other medications that are going to interfere and make them even more sedated, confused, what about risks for long-term versus short-term use? Are there long-term medical effects that clinicians need to be aware of? Yep. So with short-term use with opioid-naive older adults, we're mostly concerned with the sedative respiratory depressant effects um, because they haven't built tolerance to the medication yet. That means starting low and going slow with the dosing and monitoring for adverse effects and gradually titrating upward till pain relief is achieved and goals are met. With chronic use, we have limited evidence. So it's interesting when you look at the guidelines um, and they say, you know, there's no evidence of effectiveness with long-term chronic use with any of the medications that right. we use in older adult populations. So just because there's lack of evidence doesn't mean that they don't work and can't be used effectively. It's just that the evidence hasn't accumulated yet, but it is ongoing and we're learning more and more all the time. One of the problems that I've seen with chronic use is the development of hyperalgesia, which is where something that's not normally painful becomes extremely painful and the pain that's experienced is worse than one would expect given the condition that's underlying it. Some other long-term concerns are related to um, immune function, mm -hmm. can be impaired, sleep disordered breathing, the risk for fractures and falls, falls in particular is within the first two weeks of starting opioids in an older adult. Chronic long-term constipation can actually be a rate-limiting effect in the use of opioids for many older adults and can cause discomfort and suffering as well. So all of these are areas and problems that need to be monitored and considered as part of the risk-benefit analysis if opioids are going to be part of the treatment plan. Agree. And, and the other one that I was thinking about is endocrinologic disorders. We know that there is downregulation of the uh, sex hormones, testosterone, but we can, we've even seen some cases of individuals developing frank diabetes mellitus with long-term mm. use of, of opioids. So 
I agree with you that a trial may be in order for someone in whom clearly the benefit outweighs the risks. And as long as we're continuing to monitor for these long-term risks and problems, I think we may be able to get good analgesia for our patients. But I think we should share some specific examples of when we can use opioids for acute pain in older people. And I think post-op pain is a good example. Let's listen to this patient's story. Morris is a 78-year-old Army veteran who underwent a double knee replacement. He declined opioid medications for management of his post-operative pain. I just didn't want to take to opioids. The doctor said they would be short-term, that they'd help me heal, but I didn't think I needed them. I'm Army, and I'm tough. I was in Vietnam for crying out loud. And to tell the truth, I have a friend whose son got addicted to opioids. It tore his family apart. I don't think I would have gotten addicted, but at the time, I surely didn't want to risk it. The thing is, now I wonder if the doc might have been right. I had a lot of pain. I mean, serious pain. Rehab was really hard. I just couldn't do it sometimes. It's taken me nearly a year to get back to normal. <laughs> Whatever normal is if you're 78. Yeah, looking back, I might have done things differently. Let's return to doctors Her and Galuzzi for additional thoughts. Clearly, being able to get analgesia and judicious use of opioid pain management would enable him to participate in rehabilitation and have potentially faster healing. You know, Kate, if prescribers and patients are too fearful about the risks of opioids, that they're not used when they're needed, the outcomes are going to be negative and worse in function and quality of life. So I think it's really important to consider and understand beliefs and concerns that might interfere with the treatment plan um, so that we can avoid the risks of acute pain turning into chronic pain and ineffective treatment contributing to negative sequelae. One of the things that I wanted to talk about related to acute pain management is that with the opioid crisis, there have been cautions applied not only to chronic pain, but also acute pain. I would agree that providers have been too liberal with the use of opioids, even in short-term pain. And so prescribing for an appropriate time and appropriate dose is really important, and then monitoring effect over time. Some newer studies that are actually looking at anticipated duration of pain for some of the acute injuries, we would expect to see healing and lessening of pain in three to five days, seven days. Um, and so opioids would need to be tapered off and probably stopped a lot sooner than maybe they have been in earlier days. Agree. I think we can turn now to thinking about opioids use for chronic pain management. And in thinking about what works well for these patients, should we be prescribing short-acting or long-acting opioids as first line? Should opioids be taken as needed or be scheduled around the clock? And finally, are there situations where a long-acting or extended-release formulation might make sense for patients with chronic pain? 
So if we're initiating opioids as a part of the chronic pain management plan, I think we still are going to start with short-acting opioids because we need to start low. We need to be able to evaluate effect and monitor for adverse effects from those opioids. So we certainly start with short-acting. Whether or not we're giving it around the clock versus PRN, in a cognitively intact older person that is able to self-report, we might use PRNs because they can right. let us know when it might be anticipated. If the pain is continuous, then there's really no benefit to a PRN dosing and around-the-clock dosing to get a good blood level is going to be more effective. The population for which this is really relevant is the cognitively impaired who are not able to report their pain. They can't ask us for their pain medication. We have to be proactive and around-the-clock dosing is likely to be best, especially if the pain is expected to be continuous and not intermittent. We also have to be aware, though, in chronic pain management that older adults have extensive polypharmacy. And in that situation, once an effective dose of opioid is established, and if around-the-clock dosing is appropriate, then transitioning to longer-acting agents make a lot of sense. It requires less dosing and provides more consistent effect and can make adherence you know, to the treatment plan more likely. In the case of neuropathic pain, when anticonvulsants or antidepressants are not effective or can't be used because of side effects, opioids may play a role. Although not all patients with neuropathic pain respond to opioid therapy, so a trial is often needed to see what's going to work and what's not appropriate. Thank you so much for that. These scenarios are very helpful. Are there guidelines that we can rely upon to help with our decisions about opioid selection and pain management, specifically for older people? And do you think we should be thinking about reaching out to pain or palliative care specialists for this population? So there are guidelines that have been published and some new ones are coming out as we speak. Back in 2009, the American Geriatric Society published pharmacologic guidelines for managing persistent pain in older adults. Those principles are still quite valid, and they have a nice section about opioid risk and things to do to screen and monitor for safety. Um, but 2009 is a while ago, and so looking at more current guidelines is appropriate. The British Geriatric Society, British Pain Society, are in the process of updating their guidelines for pain management in older adults, and I, I'm anticipating those to be released any day. And then the American College of Rheumatology and the Arthritis Foundation just released an updated guideline on management of osteoarthritis pains. That guideline in particular provides some solid recommendations about various non-drug and drug approaches that can be useful and very relevant for older adults. Relative to when to reach out to a pain or palliative care specialist, any provider that's not comfortable managing the pain of an older adult that's complex, such as failed back syndrome, post-surgical fusion is a good example, could refer to pain or palliative care specialists. The problem is access, and not every locale has a specialist available. 
So and it, there may I, be very long wait times for exactly. seeing pain specialists, which is really, I think, Kila, why it's important that this education is disseminated to primary care providers. We are the front lines and we are going to have to be able to manage these patients if we're not able to get them to a specialist for care. That's a really excellent point, Kate. And not only are there not going to be enough pain specialists, there's not going to be enough geriatricians to meet the needs of our older adult society. So it really is essential that our educational programs shore up current best practices to assess and manage pain in the older adult population. Kayla, you and I are singing in the same choir. (laughs) I want to thank you so much for this very interesting conversation that we've had. And again, I want to thank our audience and encourage you to continue with our next podcast in the Pain Coach series, which will be Managing Patients on Opioid Analgesics. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Managing Patients on Opioid Analgesics. Welcome to the third podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's opioid analgesic REMS education blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, consider steps in managing older patients on opioid analgesics. Kate, speaking generally, what steps should we take before prescribing opioids? And do these steps differ depending on whether we're treating acute versus chronic pain? Kila, there are some important steps that we need to take for all of our patients, young and old, whether we're treating acute versus chronic pain. The rationale is we don't want to be broadsided by finding out that our patient has had problems with medications before. We need to get a good medication history. We need to do complete medication reconciliation. And then if we're considering an opioid, we do need to check the prescription drug monitoring program. This is very important because we want to make sure that the patient is not being co-prescribed a benzodiazepine or other sedative or is getting opioid medication from another provider to be caught off guard. And the PDMP is the best way uh, to be able to do that. Then we should certainly screen the patient. Even our senior patients, if you're just beginning to consider a trial of an opioid, you would want to screen the patient using an opioid use disorder risk tool. And we're going to talk about the ORT-OUD later. The next step is we have to establish treatment goals. We're looking at functional and lifestyle and quality of life goals for our patients. In addition to the simple goal of pain relief. We want our patients to be able to spend the afternoon with their grandchildren or walk the dog around the block. Some of our patients may be having orthopedic surgery. They want to be in good condition to rehab as well as possible. And that may include use of an opioid postoperatively. These are the kinds of treatment goals that I think it's important for us to look at. 
We certainly have to look at baseline assessments of the patient's pain. Where is the pain? Are we able to identify the pain generator? How is the patient functioning? What is their fall risk, especially in fragile older individuals? We have to make sure that we mitigate that as best as possible. We already mentioned other medications that they're taking and their potentials for interaction. And I think that this cannot be overstated, especially in older individuals who have very high levels of polypharmacy. It's important to involve family members or loved ones or caregivers in the treatment plan helping them to establish the functional goals and enlisting their assistance in monitoring the functional goals. That can actually help us determine the efficacy of the medication. The family members, the individuals around the patient need to be educated. A classic thing that happens in our hospice inpatient or our palliative care inpatient unit is uh, a loved one will come into the unit because their pain was not being well managed at home. We administer the medications as they had been prescribed and the patient becomes somnolent because the family really wasn't giving the medication as directed. And they'll say to us, we didn't want mom to come here so you would just put her to sleep. So we sometimes have to educate patients and caregivers that if there is a prescribed course of therapy and it seems that the patient is becoming over-sedated, that we need them to report to us rather than simply not treating the patient and maybe not letting the patient get the, the rest and the analgesia that they need. Certainly everyone around a patient who's on an opioid needs to be aware of the risks. We may need to consider having uh, naloxone in the homes of the patients are on high doses of opioids or if there's a risk for an overdose or if the patient has a concomitant medical condition like uh, COPD or respiratory insufficiency of some form. So those are the things that are very important to assess. Patient provider agreements. The PPA, this basically tells the patient and the provider who does what. What is your role? What is your agreement versus what is my responsibility? There will be one pharmacy. There will be one provider. And also, what would be grounds for divorce? Letting the patient and the caregivers know that it's not acceptable to be misusing or abusing these medications. If we find out that there's been a problem of diversion, that would be uh, grounds for eliminating our therapeutic contract. And so the PPA is like a contract between the patient and the provider. Now you may say, well, we don't want to have to be in that kind of a situation with our patients, but you certainly wouldn't do surgery on someone without doing an informed consent. So the PPA is your informed consent when you've agreed that you want to give a trial of an opioid to your patient. And then baseline urine testing. It's important to get a urine drug screen initially so that you can determine whether the patient is in fact taking medications that may interfere or be dangerous with an opioid. Is this different for acute versus chronic prescribing? I don't really think so. It's important to let everyone know that we're not singling them out. If we have a patient and we're doing a urine drug test on them, they should know that this is routine whenever we're using opioid therapy and that we're doing it really to protect the patient and everyone around the patient. 
and that it's just a protocol. And then finally, the other safety concerns of making sure that everyone understands safe storage, a lockbox if necessary, and also making a determination about whether co-prescribing naloxone is appropriate. So it's a lot to think about, but these are very important steps because the risks could be so high and burdensome. Hey, that was an excellent overview of the steps before prescribing opioid. Could you share some of the considerations about how to initiate opioid therapy um, for our older patients? Sure. For initiating opioids, questions have arisen about whether it may be in some cases appropriate to use an extended release long-acting opioid. But I think most expert panels and certainly the CDC guideline supports beginning a therapeutic trial with an immediate release opioid and prescribing the lowest effective dose. You have to use caution at any dosage and you have had to up titrate to approximately 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day. You need to stop and think about whether you're getting the efficacy from the medication that you were looking at. And that requires that you look at the patient's functionality, how the patient is responding, get a measure of their mood, and also assessing their cognition. You know, we want patients to be able to participate not just in their normal daily activities, but certainly in rehab if they're trying to come back from an injury or from surgery. As we said, having all your ducks in a row with respect to the patient provider agreement, the baseline urine, drug testing, and considerations for co prescribing naloxone, but initially beginning a therapeutic trial would be with an immediate release opioid. So, Kate, would there be a place for extended release with acute pain? Some of the extended release products are low enough in dosage that you could be using them as a first-line medication. But I think of using an IR opioid as a good way of gauging how the patient is going to respond to the medication. Some of our patients who have one or two doses of morphine develop delirium, or they may develop myoclonus, which is going to be very difficult to treat. It makes sense to give them a short-acting product so that it will leave their system in a shorter period of time. In using that first line in initiating opioid therapy for acute pain, would we be using the products as needed or daily or around the clock? I think you've already covered that in a prior podcast, Keela, when you said it really depends on whether the individual is able to self-report their pain and able to access the medication themselves. For someone who's not able to get out of bed, to be consigned to having to call for the medication only when they need it, what ends up happening is by the time they start asking for it, their pain levels are beginning to escalate. If they're residing in long-term care facilities, assisted living, or even in the hospital setting, it makes sense to schedule the medication every four to six hours or every 12 hours or eight hours, depending upon the formulation, so that the patient is not in a situation where they're in pain and they're having to wait. All these things have to be taken into consideration. 
The other thing that I like to tell families and caregivers is how to check someone's respiratory rate. So if an individual is on a new opioid medication or on an up titration, a higher dose of an opioid, for the first 24 to 48 hours, make sure the family's paying attention to their respiratory rate. If the patient's usual respiratory rate is 14, and now it's dropping to seven or five, there's a problem, and they need to be able to intervene quickly to prevent respiratory arrest. Yeah, that's a really good point, Kate. I don't think we often do educate the family or caregivers to monitor respiratory rate. Well, I think it's reasonable. It's something that they can do rather than just telling the family, you know, to monitor for sedation or somnolence. Well, we know that the patient is going to become somnolent when we give them an opioid. And in fact, it may be very therapeutic for the patient to be able to sleep now that they're comfortable enough. I think that looking at their respiratory rate is really important. And the other thing that we didn't talk about when (laughs) initiating opioids is the not-so-golden rule. You know the not-so-golden rule, Keila? (laughs) I'm not sure what one you're referring to. Well, the not-so-golden rule is that the clinician who prescribes an opioid must be the clinician who prescribes a laxative. You must initiate a bowel regimen at the time that you initiate an opioid, or you're going to have to face the consequences thereof. Not desirable. So before we move on to talk about chronic pain, what's your position related to abuse deterrent opioid formulations and whether or not these should be considered for older adults with acute pain? The rationale is a good one. They can't be crushed. They can't be pulverized. You can't turn it into a powder and mix it with something to inject it. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think that where there's a will, there's a way. Individuals will find ways to get around these things. And I'm not thinking so much of the individual patient, him or herself, but rather of someone who may be getting them through diversion. However, the big problem in the older population is most are on Medicare or Medicaid, and these medications are still under patent protection, and there are no generic formulations of them, so they're quite expensive. Patients may not uh, be able to afford them. I do think that they have a very important role to play, and I'm hoping that they will become more cost-effective, especially for older patients in whom we're concerned that, like we said earlier, there may be a lot of people in the house. Great, Kate. Let's shift our focus now to talk about older adults with chronic pain. Um, For which of these might opioids be appropriate, and how would we start treatment? Patients with chronic pain are probably one of the most challenging medical situations because you really are entering into a long-term therapeutic relationship. So the first thing you have to consider is have we done everything else that we can? Has the patient been to physical therapy? Have they seen a physiatrist? Are there interventional options that we have tried and failed? Patients who haven't responded to any of the non-opioid pharmacologic options or any of the complementary and alternative medicine types of options, you know, like aqua therapy or heat therapy, really should be considered 
You talked earlier about Roger Chow's 2009 opioid treatment guidelines, and I would encourage the audience to look at their recommendations because they do say that chronic opioid therapy can be effective for carefully selected and monitored patients with chronic non-cancer pain. And of course, there are newer guidelines available as well. As we've already said, this is really a case for trial and error. I liken this to trying on clothes. You really don't know how the patient is going to react to the opioid because there is tremendous individual variation among patients. So I do think that opioids may be appropriate for chronic non-cancer ongoing pain. However, It is going to require significant diligence on the part of the patient, the patient's caregivers or family, and the prescriber to make sure that these patients can be kept safe. That said, patients who are in palliative care, who have serious life-threatening disease states, or those who are facing the end of life certainly are good candidates for opioid therapy because uh, it may really make the difference in their quality of life and their ability to go forward with their medical situation. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Kate. And, you know, from my perspective, it comes back to what are the patient's goals and what are their current functional abilities given the goals that they've established. And those can be very different from a chronic pain situation to a palliative care situation. I think what's been really sad to see is the reaction to the opioid crisis has led to many patients in palliative care who have had their pain managed long-term on low-dose opioids, maintaining good function without adverse effects, and having their medications either rapidly tapered um, or stopped abruptly and are suffering and struggling with the resulting issues of how they're going to live out the rest of their life without their pain managed effectively. The last thing we want is to send these patients to the street because as is now well known, the overdose crisis in America right now is really around carfentanil and sufentanil, which are basically veterinary grades of fentanyl. So very, very potent medications, very dangerous for patients to get on the street. And if we're not able to treat them, we could drive them that way. I have to just temper that though by saying, I think it's be unlikely that senior citizens themselves would do that. But family members who are frustrated or upset may in fact turn to that type of thing. Yep, I agree. So in thinking about implementing an opioid treatment plan longer term, are there some general rules that you tend to follow focusing on keeping patients as functional as possible? Well, I like to think about the five A's, Keela, for pain, and they are analgesia. You already described some very good tools for measuring pain relief, pain scales that can be very useful to show the patient and the family that you are making progress towards getting better analgesia and with the understanding that they're probably never going to get to zero on uh, a visual analog pain scale. Activity and function is the second A. So analgesia, activity. What is the patient able to do now that they were not able to do before? How close are we getting to meeting the functional goals that we've set? 
Is the individual showing aberrant or problematic behavior? Do they seem withdrawn? Do they seem like there may be something going on with them that wasn't present before? And adverse events, is the individual experiencing some of the common side effects of opioid analgesia? I already mentioned myoclonus, but other things like itching or nausea and vomiting or excessive sedation and somnolence and certainly constipation all need to be assessed at every visit. And then finally, the patient's affect. How is their mood? How is their behavior? Is the medication affecting them in a positive way or in a negative way? I like those A's. I think those are really good to be useful as an acronym to help us remember some of the important things that we should be evaluating. Thank you. We hear about the general rule about analgesics in general, but opioids specifically about starting low and going slow. Are there other considerations in the dosing and reevaluation regimen to be considered with long-term opioid treatment? Well, you know, I like the start low, go slow adage for, for geriatrics in general. But if somebody's in pain, I think we should start low and go. I don't have a problem with up titrating every 48 to 72 hours if the patient is having significant pain, and especially if they're being closely monitored for respiratory depression. And are we going to consider using an ERLA for the patient? In other words, if the patient is on an immediate release opioid and they have developed opioid tolerance, but they're having to take it every four or every six hours around the clock, that's going to be very difficult in terms of maintenance of sleep and maintenance of routine daily activities. So that might be a time to think about moving toward an extended release or long-acting opioid. And again, you know, no understanding the concept of tolerance, uh, meaning that the patient will more than likely be able to increase the dose and not have an adverse effect is really important. So understanding the definition of opioid tolerance is important. The FDA definition is based on morphine milligram equivalents using an equianalgesic dosing table. So roughly 60 milligrams of oral morphine is equivalent to 30 milligrams of oxycodone or 8 milligrams of hydromorphone, or 25 milligrams of oxymorphone. And in order to be considered opioid tolerant, someone has to have been taking that 60 milligrams of morphine or 30 milligrams of oxycodone daily for one week or longer. So before I would even begin to move to considering putting a patient onto an extended release long-acting opioid, I would want to make sure that they have developed true tolerance to it. So Kate, what would you do if you were to consider switching opioids? Keila, that's a really important question because when we think about how individuals respond to opioids, there are some individuals who will have adverse reactions. They may continue to have uh, persistent itching or persistent nausea, and we may need to switch them from their opioid to another one. Another thing may be that the patient is developing renal insufficiency and we don't want to use morphine and we would prefer the patient to be on, uh, for example, oxycodone, which 
has less effect on renal function. So opioid rotation basically relies on equianalgesic dosing, where you take the value of the medication that you're currently on versus the value of the new opioid. And these are based on the equianalgesic table. And then you calculate the 24-hour dose of the current opioid and solve for the amount of the new opioid. So it would give you an equianalgesic 24-hour dose of the new opioid. And then we have to automatically reduce that dose by 25 to 50% due to incomplete cross-tolerance, which means that when you introduce the new opioid, you're going to actually have an enhancement of the analgesia. Now, I recognize that this is math, and a lot of us don't enjoy doing mathematics, but it's very important because you don't want to overshoot and cause respiratory depression, nor do you want to undershoot and precipitate withdrawal symptoms. So everyone should avail themselves of a good equianalgesic opioid rotation table and become familiar with it so that we can make these changes effectively and safely. That's very helpful, Kate. So for some patients, is there a point where opioids are no longer necessary or beneficial? How, and how would you know? We've already mentioned the problem of hyperalgesia, and we know that hyperalgesia is an increased sensitivity of pain, and it usually occurs at high MME doses, usually over long periods of time. Let's listen to this patient's story. Rhonda is a 71-year-old retired pharmaceutical representative who required a right below-the-knee amputation for osteosarcoma. Her postoperative pain was initially well-managed with an extended-release opioid taken every eight hours and an immediate-release opioid taken every four to six hours as needed. However, she developed right-sided phantom limb pain manifesting as pins and needles, electric shock-like pain, and burning which occurred throughout the day and worsened at night. Her physician doubled, then tripled her ER opioid dose, which helped at first. However, she now complains of pain not only in her right leg, but also in her low back, pelvis, and left leg that is exacerbated by touch, cold, or movement. I just don't know what to do. I understand the deal with phantom pain, but now this. I have pain that has nothing to do with the surgery. My pain doctor says I may have developed increasing pain because of the high opioid doses. She wants to decrease the opioids, maybe even stop them over time, while starting some other medications for the phantom pain. I'm not sure this will work, but I have to try something. Let's return to our experts for commentary. So this is a physiological phenomenon. The pain is getting worse and it's appearing in new locations distal to the original pain generator. At that point, increases in opioid dose actually worsen pain rather than improve it. And it's going to be critical to reduce and eliminate the opioid and look at alternative treatment plans. And if the patient is having increasing pain, despite your increasing the doses appropriately, you know, with an uptitration schedule, or if the patient is just simply not improving in the absence of underlying disease progression, then I think that, you know, that would be a reason for us to consider withdrawing the patient from opioids and doing a cautious down titration. 
Keila, do you sometimes find that patients are resistant to stopping opioids or maybe the family members are resistant? And are there times when we should be concerned about family members or caregivers? Yes, definitely. I've been in situations where the older adult did not want to stop their opioid therapy. And it's usually because it is the treatment that is managing their pain effectively. And so they're not going to be convinced that they need to stop if they're not experiencing some of the adverse effects that we've talked about. They may have been on the same drug and the same dose for years with good function and outcome. And um, unfortunately, many of those patients are being taken off of their opioids and probably needlessly. And we do see family members that may not want to stop opioids. I don't think they're typically resistant in a normal situation um, and often are concerned about long-term opioid use as well. I think we need to ask the question if there's something else going on here. Is there a potential for diversion or why does the family member not want to stop the opioids? And it may be a very valid reason that they're loved one is comfortable and it's taken them a long time to get to the place where their pain is managed and we absolutely want to support that. But if that's not the case and there are concerns and issues with the opioid that would warrant stopping them, we need to have a conversation and try to understand where they're coming from. I agree. That's a good time to have a sit down. I have an anecdote from one of my colleagues. She's actually a palliative care physician. Her father had been on chronic opioid therapy for many years because he had very, very severe OA of his knees. Over time, he was able to undergo the surgery and he had uh, total knee replacements and he was maintained and through the operative period and rehab with his opioids. He rehabbed very well and he Uh, at one point decided that he didn't need his medication anymore. And it became a tremendous shock to my friend when she got the call from the emergency room to learn that her father was in acute withdrawal because he had just completely stopped his opioids. No one had told him that he needed to withdraw them slowly and cautiously. So yes, families do need to be very much involved Well, that's a great segue, Kate, into the next topic when we are wanting to switch to a non-opioid approach. How do we go about tapering opioids that have been used um, for a long-term treatment plan? Really, there is no single approach that's appropriate for every single patient, and you may need a range of approaches for your different patient population. But in general, a slow approach would be a 10% dose reduction per week, and that should definitely be safe. If for some reason your patient has to be taken off the medication more quickly, you would be then looking at something like a 25 to 50% reduction in the dose every three to four days. You should definitely use adjuvant medications to minimize withdrawal symptoms. Um, You may need to use some antiemetics, antidiarrheal agents. And one of the things that we have found to be very useful is clonidine in mitigating the very, very unpleasant symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Mm Let's talk a little bit about any advice you have regarding disposal of leftover opioids, and particularly um, as a way of avoiding risk to others. 
I think that the gold standard is really a take back program. If you're in a community where either the pharmacy or the police department has a take back program, that's what I think you should do. You certainly should not have your patient bring the medications to your office for you to dispose of them. Um, but it can be a problem, especially in palliative care, if the patient has you know, a comfort kit in the home and then they die, the family is left with you know, all of these medications. So counseling families that those medications need to be returned, ideally to a take back location, uh, is very important. If there is no availability of a take back, what the FDA recommends is to de-identify the medication, take the medication out of the bottle so no one can know what it is, mix it with something very unsavory like cat litter, and then dispose of it in the trash. And it is okay, according to the FDA, to flush leftover mm -hmm. opioids. I don't know how you feel about these things. I hate to see these things going into the environment. No, I think that is a big concern for a lot of individuals. So looking at the opportunities to submit them back to the pharmacy or somewhere else is probably a better option. So I know in the next podcast, we're going to talk more about opioid use disorder, but kind of as a segue into that, do you have any pearls about what you use to suspect opioid use disorder may be occurring in your older adult? Some of those things that we talked about before where patients are manifesting unusual behaviors, aberrant behaviors, uh, that kind of thing. If we suspect diversion, then I think we have to be very, very cautious. Someone who has substance use disorder may have pain and it may be someone who's already taking analgesic medications for pain. So I think that would be uh, a time when we might consider getting a pain specialist involved. But the tool that we have now that we can use is the ORTOUD, and we're going to go over that in our next podcast. Thanks, Kate. You know, and I just wanted to add here, related to individuals with opioid use disorder, is that that doesn't negate our treating them and treating their pain effectively. There are guidelines and recommendations about managing the coexisting conditions of opioid use disorder and chronic pain. It comes down to compassion and caring for each individual and helping them to achieve the best outcome possible using safe, effective approaches to prevent misuse and abuse. So I think we're at the end of this podcast, Kate, and I'm just going to ask if you have a couple of key points to summarize. My key points would be that chronic opioid therapy may be an option for our older patients who have chronic persistent pain, who are carefully selected and carefully monitored in an ongoing fashion. This is a compassionate use of these medications, knowing that there is a risk involved and that we really have to partner with the patient, the caregivers, and the family so that we can get the best outcomes for our patients and improve their quality of life. Thank you, Kate, for sharing your knowledge and experience on this important topic. And for you, the listeners, we encourage you to join us to the final podcast in this series focusing on addiction medicine, a primer. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Addiction Medicine, a primer. Welcome to the fourth podcast in the Pain Coach series. 
These podcasts address the FDA's Opioid Analgesic REMS Education Blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, discuss the fundamentals for understanding opioid use disorder and screening tools to identify patients at risk of developing OUD and patients who have signs of OUD. So, Kate, let's start by discussing the neurobiology of OUD, or what we call the addictive cycle. Kate, can you explain this briefly? You know, this is unfortunately a physiologic phenomenon, um, and I think it's important for us to remember addiction is actually a change in the brain it's a process by which the brain is actually changed. So if we think about the brain, we know that the mu opioid receptors are widely distributed in the brain and other parts of the body, as we've already noted, the GI tract, which is why we get constipation. But the areas of the brain that are most invested with mu opioid receptors that would be subject to the mu agonism of opioids are the periaqueductal gray, and that area actually serves for opioid analgesia. The unfortunate thing about the periaqueductal gray is it lives right next door to the nucleus accumbens, which is part of the limbic system, and that is the pleasure center in the brain. So certain individuals who develop or experience analgesia from opioids who have the disease of opioid use or substance use disorder may actually activate the nucleus accumbens and develop euphoria. So these individuals are very vulnerable to not just the feeling of relief of pain, but they are feeling relaxation, relief of anxiety, uh, and as I said, euphoria. And that can lead to problematic behavior, meaning that the individual now is seeking the opioid not because they need pain relief, but because they need the medication to feel good. So it begins with binging and intoxication uh, with the agent, and it could be a prescription opioid, alcohol, cocaine, et cetera. And they have this rewarding or euphoric effect. And as the disorder progresses, they get to a second stage of unfortunately having to attempt to avoid withdrawal because of the negative effect of that. And um, we've already talked about craving. And in essence, the definition of substance use disorder has craving and compulsion as a big part of the problem. So again, it's, it's actually perturbations in the brain that are affected in individuals with this problem. So Kate, what that emphasizes is that OUD is a disease. There are mechanisms involved that are beyond the patient's control, not necessarily a choice that they're making, but a drive that's related to the neurobiology. 
Absolutely. And there's that other C word, control and craving and compulsion. Those are really the hallmarks. And I think the question is, you know, who is most vulnerable to opioid misuse or, or OUD? And we now know that it's people who have underlying low hedonic tone. These are people who have difficulty experiencing pleasure. Um, I've had patients who've said, I have to have the opioid. It's the only time I feel normal. It's the only time I feel good. You know, that is a problematic behavior. Other people who are vulnerable are people who have psychiatric comorbidities. Uh, we know that 19% of the people in the country who have mental health disorders receive almost 50% of the prescribed opioids. So this is a problem that we have to be very alert to in everyone. And again, hopefully less so in senior citizens, but we have to be alert to it for everyone. So given that OUD is a disease, are there ways that we should communicate with patients and caregivers? Well, words matter. We have to be really careful that we don't stigmatize patients. Um, and we've already talked about the reality of tolerance to the effect of these medications and the fact that individuals may become physically dependent upon them. And tolerance and physical dependence are listed in the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder, but they don't apply in a patient who is taking the medication as directed and who is meeting functional goals and getting good benefits from the medication. But aberrant and problematic behaviors like craving and so forth are things that we're really looking at as potentially giving us the idea that the individual is using the medication for something other than pain relief. So we could go over the substance use disorder criteria, which is from DSM-5. And basically, uh, the official criteria are the first ones are tolerance and withdrawal, which again, not valid if the person is taking the opioid as prescribed. But I'm going to talk about the C's now, loss of control which represents using larger amounts for longer periods of time than needed, or the inability to cut down or control the use of the medicine, uh, increased preoccupation or time spent using or recovering from the medication, and then craving and compulsion. And the other criteria in DSM-5 is use despite negative consequences, and negative really equates to harm. You know, what is the harm of using these medications to the individual? Is there a problem at work? Are there problems with relationships or school, social issues? Are people reducing their activities, their work time? Are they experiencing physical harm, physical hazards? Are they experiencing physical or psychological harm? So these are the criteria that uh, DSM-5 wants us to look at when we're considering a patient who has possibly risk for opioid use disorder. And if we were to score these, again, somebody taking medications as directed, we would not count tolerance or withdrawal. But if we count loss of control 
and use despite negative consequences, the things I talked about, if they have two to three of them, they have mild substance use disorder. If they have four or five, they have moderate substance use disorder. So severe substance use disorder would be indicated on DSM-5 as a score greater or equal to six. These are patients that we need to seriously think about getting into some form of therapy and helping them to withdraw from the medication and getting on something that will be safe for them. So Kate, I want to just clarify because our audience might be confused of the differences between substance use disorder and opioid use disorder. Can you clarify those two diagnoses? Well, any patient who becomes compulsive, losing control, use of a substance uh, for a reason other than that for which it's prescribed, despite its causing harm, could be considered a substance use disorder patient. This could be alcohol, this could be benzodiazepines, this can be nicotine, uh, it could be cocaine. So individuals who have those criteria of compulsion, craving, using the substance despite its causing harm are considered substance use disorders. Opioid use disorder patients are patients with substance use disorder. Their substance happens to be opioids. Excellent. That's a great clarification. So are there known characteristics that increase patients' risk of opioid use disorder? Um, as I mentioned, this idea of anhedonia, people who have difficulty experiencing pleasure or people who already are using other substances like cocaine or people who are quote-unquote addicted to cigarettes would be patients that we would be concerned may have increased risk for developing this problem of opioid use disorder. And there are other risk factors that have been identified and incorporated into some of the screening tools that we have. So I think this would be a good time to segue to talk about the opioid risk tool um, or other screening tools to help identify patients that are at risk for OUD. Well, I like the opioid risk tool because, you know, it's built on Lynn Webster's ORT, which um, actually broke down differences between genders, etc. This tool is much more streamlined. And part of why I really like it is it was developed and underwent sensitivity and specificity testing right here in Philadelphia by <laughs> Martin Cheadle and Peggy Compton. Would you like to take the opioid risk tool? Well, yes, let me be the patient. I'm going to test you, Keila. Okay. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you the truth. Oh. oh. <laughs> I'm going to make it interesting. Oh, let's make it interesting. Okay. So I'm going to administer this test to you, Dr. Herr, because I want to make sure that if we do decide to prescribe an opioid, that we will be able to keep you safe while you're using that. So please try to answer as truthfully as possible. Okay. Dr. Herr, do you have a family history of substance abuse? For example, alcohol? No, I don't have any family members that I know of that abuse alcohol. Okay. How about illegal drugs? Any family members who have used illegal drugs? Well, I'd say none that I know of. 
What about prescription drug abuse? And what I mean by that is using a prescription drug that was not prescribed for you or for a reason other than the one it was prescribed for. Well, my uncle got in trouble for borrowing medication from my dad when he had back problems. Hmm. So borrowing medications. Okay, well, I'm going to score you on that. Now we turn to you and your personal history of substance use. Do you have a history of problems with alcohol? Well, I wouldn't say problems, but I do have an occasional social drink with friends. What about illegal drugs, Dr. Her? Never used them. Okay. Prescription drug abuse. I always follow the prescription to the letter. You don't misuse them at all? No. All right. This is a personal question. Please don't take this the wrong way, but are you between age 16 to 45? I am not. What about psychological diseases? Do you have anyone in your family or have you ever had any struggles with bipolar disease, schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, or obsessive compulsive disorder? I have not had these issues, but my uncle had bipolar schizophrenia. Hmm. And Dr. Hur, this is the last question. Thinking about yourself, do you have a problem or any family members have a problem of depression? Nope. We're all pretty glass half full almost all the time. Well, I have very good news. Your score is two, which indicates a low risk for future opioid use disorder. But you're only one point away from being high risk. So I think, you know, our audience can see how easy this test is. Mm -hmm. And again, a score of three or higher is where you would begin to be concerned that the individual may be at risk for opioid use disorder. And you may or may not feel comfortable treating that individual because of that. Mm -hmm. So it was an easy screening tool to administer. And one thought that I had maybe to share with the audience related to many of the recommendations of steps that should be done before initiating opioid use, like urine screens, contracting, screening for risk. I think um, your patient reaction is going to be highly dependent on the way this is presented. And I think if a clinician establishes these practices, these screening practices, has recommended best practice to assure that their patients receive the best care possible and that these are screens that are done with every patient that you work with who is going to be using opioids. It takes away the stigma and, you know, people feeling like you don't believe them or trust them and can be presented in a way to create a positive relationship um, that then can help you to move forward with a, a safe, effective treatment plan. I agree. I think that having a therapeutic relationship with your patient based on trust and mutual respect and understanding is, is really the key to being able to, especially in cases of, of chronic pain, achieve analgesia for our patients and improve their function. Great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about diagnosing OUD. So what you talked about with the opioid risk tool is a screener. Mm -hmm. um, it's not diagnostic. 
So what thoughts are there for clinicians? So I think the DSM-5 criteria that we discussed earlier is really where we would be making this assessment of the patient and, and feeling that the patient may have opioid use disorder. We certainly would have to look very carefully at the patient and determine that, you know, again, does this patient need a referral to a treatment center? Um, do I feel comfortable making this diagnosis and or do I feel comfortable treating this individual? But again, I think the manifestation of harm and continued use coupled with craving and compulsion, uh, it, it really does bespeak the diagnosis of opioid use disorder. So in the DSM-5 criteria, there's also a judgment about severity of the behaviors. Right. Is that something that should inform decisions about treatment or referral? I think that is really at the discretion of the clinician. Does the clinician feel comfortable treating this person or not? Um, and I think that as soon as you assess the fact that the patient may have substance use disorder, it should immediately trigger your decision about whether you're going to be able to intervene effectively with the right medications or whether you think the patient needs to have a referral for treatment or to a pain management specialist. Yeah, that makes sense. So for patients that are diagnosed with OUD, what are the treatment options that are available? Well, you know, we've mentioned naloxone, which is used for alcohol abuse, et cetera, which is a, a potential. What most people are using, of course, is uh, buprenorphine. The thing about buprenorphine is that if you're using it for pain, you don't need a waiver. But if you're using buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder, you need to be trained and you need to be very aware of how this medication can be used. Remember that there may be other things that can be useful as well, like psychological or psychosocial interventions. Cognitive behavioral therapy may be very, very useful for the patient. And yeah, I think that the most important thing is, is how comfortable are you with using these medications? For example, methadone could be used for the treatment of opioid use disorder, but it's really only to be accessed in federally regulated opioid treatment programs, and it, it's not indicated to be prescribed by a healthcare provider for treatment of opioid use disorder. So, you know, there are options out there, but I think for most primary care providers, having the backup of treatment centers, referral centers is very important. And what I, what I would like to tell the audience is that there are a number of treatment and referral centers that you can find from ASAM or from SAMHSA and also the AAAP, which is addiction psychiatry. These are all good referral sources for finding treatment centers near you so that you can get help with this because this is a very difficult problem to manage especially if your patient has ongoing pain because you want to be able to give analgesia to the patient, but at the same time, we need to keep our patients safe. Excellent. This is a wonderful podcast and primer on issues related to addiction medicine. Kate, um, do you have some main points from this podcast that you would like to share as takeaways for the audience? My main point is that mu agonism is a wonderful option for pain management in patients who don't 
get relief from other forms of therapy, pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. But the areas of the brain that are invested with mu opioid receptors, unfortunately, are very close to pleasure centers in the brain and also are heavily invested in the respiratory centers of the brain. So opioids can be problematic, not just in causing respiratory depression or respiratory failure or arrest, but they can also be problematic in precipitating the disease of opioid use disorder. So we really need to treat these patients very cautiously. We need to be versed in some of the screening tools that we have, and ideally we have members of our community who can help us to uh, maintain these patients in a safe environment when they do need treatment for the problem of opioid use disorder. Many thanks, Kate, and to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. This brings us to the close of our final podcast in the Pain Coach series. Please stay tuned for the Pain Coach live meetings that will continue the education with case-based learning and role-play demonstrations. Thank you for listening.